Today's reading comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 48. And Amy will give you the cue when you're doing your thing. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the disciples in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. Good morning, everyone. My name's Nat Rosner, and I'm the Associate Minister here at Carlton. It's really lovely to be with you this morning. Whether you're here in the building or whether you're connecting in from at home, it's, it's great to begin our Easter season together. And wasn't that a fantastic way to do our Bible reading? It really brought to life a great story. I love looking at the clothes uh, still on the floor here, and I think we had a very compliant cult and Jesus. Very impressive. It really did bring to life a great story, didn't it? But is it a true story? 
Is it about real people, about real places, about real events? Luke addresses this book, uh, this question right at the beginning of his book. We're diving into Luke at chapter 19, but right back at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, he writes this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. This is history, writes Luke. It's been carefully investigated. It's written so that we can be sure of the things that we are reading, of the things that we've been taught. This is something I really love about the Bible. The Bible isn't a philosophical discussion about life and faith. The Bible isn't a set of dogmatic statements about God. The Bible isn't a list of demands that God makes of people. The Bible tells a story. It's a good story. It's a true story. It's God's story and it's our story. We meet God in his relationships with people. We first meet God in the Bible when he is walking with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We meet God as he rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. We meet God as he leads them through the wilderness, as he brings his people into the promised land. We meet God as he gives his people kings, King Saul, King David, King Solomon, and then other kings. We meet God as the kingdom of Israel thrives and flourishes. We meet God as the people disobey him and as the kingdom of Israel falls apart. We meet God through the prophets of the Old Testament. And then we meet God in Jesus. We meet God at Jesus' birth. We meet God at Jesus' baptism. We meet God as Jesus drives out evil spirits, as he heals people, as he declares forgiveness to people. We meet God as Jesus calls his disciples, as he teaches. We meet God as Jesus proclaims salvation, as he declares the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In the Bible, we meet God in history. We meet God who speaks and acts. And his words and his actions are written down for us in the Bible, recorded for us in Luke's Gospel. This morning we meet Jesus on his way up to Jerusalem. He'd been on this journey for 10 chapters so far in the book of Luke. From chapter nine, verse 51 in fact, and there we read, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. A lot's already happened on this journey, but now he's getting close. In verse 28, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. In verse 29, he's approaching Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. We might just pause here for a moment to get our bearings. Bethany was less than three kilometers from Jerusalem. We're less sure of exactly where Bethphage was, but Luke tells us it was near Bethany. So you can see 
Bethany and a kind of guesstimate about where Bethphage is on the map here. They're close to Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. Jesus and his disciples had walked here from Jericho. If you look at the beginning of Luke 19, they were in Jericho, they met Zacchaeus, and then they started walking. Apparently that's about 23 kilometres, about an eight or nine hour walk. And as they've been walking, they've ascended a kilometre while they've done that. So you can see there Jericho right down the bottom and the Mount of Olives at the top. And in verse 29, as Jesus approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Now, it's not exactly clear how Jesus knew there would be a colt there just when he needed it. He'd been along this road before, so maybe he had lined this up ahead of time. There was also an ancient custom that allowed figures of state and other important people to claim property for their personal use. Rabbis were allowed to do that as well, so maybe that's how Jesus knew there would be a cult there. Or maybe Jesus knew because he is all-knowing. He knows all things. Luke doesn't go into details. But we do read in verse 32 that those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. Jesus is in control. He's in full control of everything that's happening right at this moment, even as he heads to the cross. Luke emphasizes this theme again in chapter 22 when Jesus sent Peter and John into Jerusalem to make preparations for them to eat the Passover, the last supper that Jesus would have with his disciples. Jesus said to them, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and again, they found things just as Jesus had told them. Luke wants us to know that Jesus is in control. As the events of Jesus' death unfold over the coming days, it might not look like it, but we can be confident Jesus was in control, and he still is. This is a beautiful reminder for us when we feel unsure about what's happening around us. Jesus is still in control. Once the disciples found the colt, they brought it to Jesus, they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices 
for all the miracles they had seen. I'm no footy expert, but I was watching a couple of weeks ago when the Swans were playing and Buddy Franklin was hoping to kick his 1,000th goal. I don't know, was anyone else watching that game? Maybe you were. And it was amazing to watch. As Buddy was lining up this goal that would be his 1,000th goal, there were spectators sitting on the fences all around the ground, leaning forward expectantly as he ran into kick. And as the goal was sailing through, people swarmed onto the SCG, literally thousands and thousands of people running out behind him as the, well, from every direction, as the, as the ball went through the goals. Buddy was literally mobbed. It was amazing to watch. There was this sense of joy. Uh, there was a sense of celebrating a hero, a sense of triumph. It was amazing. Buddy was lifted up onto the shoulders of some fellow teammates, I think, and carried through the crowd. It was pretty challenging. It was uh, pretty packed. There was literally a crush of people. The jubilant mood, the expectant mood when Buddy kicked that goal reminded me of the mood of the crowd of disciples as Jesus came into Jerusalem. Joy, celebration of this man on the colt, a sense of expectation. They were joyfully praising God in loud voices for all the miracles that they'd seen Jesus do. They called out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're calling out a line from Psalm 118. This was a psalm of praise that pilgrims used to sing as they went up to Jerusalem. It's a song of victory. It's a hymn of praise to the God who, bring, who defeats his foes and establishes his kingdom. And if you look into Psalm 118 in more detail, it's a psalm that points forward to God's Messiah in a number of different ways. The crowd makes this claim explicit. The psalmist cries out in verse 26 of Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowd sings, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowd of disciples also called out peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This echoes the great praise of the company of heaven, the angels when Jesus was born. They sang glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. The cry is peace and glory at Jesus' birth. The cry is peace and glory as Jesus rides on this colt into Jerusalem as king. What other leader do we know of whom we could truly cry out peace and glory? But the Pharisees don't join the joyful praise. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Teacher, they call him. He was a teacher, but they don't call him king. But King Jesus won't rebuke his disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. One commentary I read said this, that which is lifeless knows life when it sees it, even though that which is living does not. It's a really stinging indictment 
of the Pharisees' response. Friends, Jesus evokes a response from people. Jesus divides people, both then and now. Earlier in his journey to Jerusalem, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus said this, whoever is not with me is against me. We should never be surprised if people oppose Jesus. We should never be surprised if people oppose us because we belong to Jesus. Jesus divides people. Whoever is not with me is against me. So friends, we meet Jesus here on his way into Jerusalem. This is the first public declaration in the book of Luke that Jesus is the king. But what kind of king is he? Here we meet Jesus the King who is in control. We meet Jesus the King riding into Jerusalem on a colt, riding humbly. Normally a king would arrive riding on a war horse. We meet Jesus the King who comes in the name of the Lord, who comes in fulfilment of long-held expectations in the Psalms. We meet Jesus the King who comes bringing peace for people with God. Jesus the King of glory. We meet Jesus the King who is praised and acclaimed by some. And we meet Jesus the King who is opposed by others. And with that opposition of the Pharisees, the tone of Luke's account changes in verse 41. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. This is a really kind of bumpy segue, isn't it? It it feels like a really sharp contrast to the joyful praise as Jesus came close to Jerusalem, riding down the Mount of Olives. But perhaps it's not such a shock if we read all the way through Luke's gospel. On his way to Jerusalem, uh, Jesus warned multiple times of God's impending judgment on the city and on the temple. Ironically, Jerusalem means city of peace. But that city now faces judgment because they have resisted Jesus' offer of peace with God. They face judgment because they have opposed the coming king, because they haven't recognized God coming to them. Even with all of that, Jesus' action in the temple is really confronting, isn't it? His prophecy about Jerusalem sounds really harsh. Perhaps those things seem incongruous with the king who comes bringing peace. The key is Jesus' tears, I think. 
And they weren't those quiet tears that just slide silently down our cheeks. The word here is wailing, sobbing. Jesus is sobbing and wailing over Jerusalem like a parent watching a child make a foolish, foolish decision. Jesus mourns a city sealing its fate. This might remind you of some of the prophets of the Old Testament who wept as they called people back to obedience with God, wept over the people's disobedience. The terrible judgment that is being declared here doesn't come from a stern and cold justice. It comes from Jesus' heart of love, a heart that wants the best for people, a heart that wants the best from people. So it's a heart that now opposes with sorrow and tears the people's rebellion. A rebellion that set their own agendas, their own interests ahead of that of God. Jesus, the glorious King of Peace, is a weeping king. The judgment Jerusalem faces is deserved, but it is delivered through the tears of the God of love. Friends, this is a really solemn reminder of the consequences of rejecting Jesus, rejecting Jesus the King. Because it rejected Jesus, Jerusalem faced physical defeat. In AD 70, the city and the temple fell to the Romans. Their rejection of Jesus' offer of peace led to destruction. The cost of sin is great, we see here. And not just for Jerusalem. In Hebrews chapter 9, we're reminded that all people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. We need the peace of God, the peace with God, that Jesus offers us just as much as the city of Jerusalem did. That peace was offered to us, each of us, on the cross when the punishment that brought us peace was on Jesus, as Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53. So friends, let me encourage you this Easter, don't miss out on accepting Jesus' offer of peace with God if you haven't already accepted it. As we go back to Jesus and Jerusalem, even as the city and the temple face this judgment, Jesus continues to teach. In verse 47, every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Yet again, we see people divided over Jesus. Some mob him in enthusiastic praise and hang on his words. Others are making plans to kill him. Sisters and brothers, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, we have a choice to make too. Will we praise him? Will we lift our voices with the voices of the crowd of the disciples then? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus calls us to honour him as king, to worship him as king, to hang on his words. If we do praise Jesus, our praise must be steadfast. Our allegiance to our King must be resolute. The crowd of disciples joyfully praised God in loud voices as he rode on that colt towards Jerusalem. 
A few days later, Pilate was declaring before another crowd that he found no basis for the charges against Jesus. But the crowd kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. We don't know if it was the same crowd or not. Perhaps there were some of the same people in both crowds. There's a challenge for us here, not to be fickle as followers of Jesus, not to be fickle in our praise of the King. There's also a challenge in Luke's gospel that our response to Jesus must be more than just praise. In Luke 9.23, before Jesus resolutely set out on his journey to Jerusalem, he said this to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Kings and leaders call people to follow them. That is what they do, often in really difficult circumstances. We can see that playing out really starkly at the moment as President Zelensky in Ukraine calls his people to stand with him, to fight for their country in a really unimaginably difficult time. Jesus is no exception. He calls us to follow him, to follow him in something much bigger than war. He calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and to follow him. That call raises questions for us, for you and for me. I wonder whether you're on this journey with Jesus. Perhaps you don't know much about Jesus. Perhaps uh, you don't really know what this journey entails. Let me encourage you to make this Easter a time where you find out more about Jesus, find out more about his claims to be king. Come along to some of our Easter services. Join us for Christianity Explored or just come and chat with anyone you've seen up the front this morning. But for many of us, we are on this journey with Jesus. And if we are, if you are, why are you on this journey? I think we all have mixed motives. Uh, we, many of us are on this journey praising Jesus, but maybe there are other things mixed in with that as well. Perhaps we hope that Jesus will fulfill some of our deepest held desires. Perhaps our praise wavers when Jesus doesn't do that, when Jesus doesn't seem to be doing what we want. It raises a question for me about whether we are willing not just to be at church singing praise, but also to follow Jesus into trouble, into controversy, perhaps even to trial and death, as one writer put it. I find this really confronting. I do rejoice that Jesus is our King, but I also struggle to take up my cross daily and follow him. I wonder if you feel that same challenge, and if you do, What's the pointy end of that challenge for you? Where does that bite for you? Our world is in crisis. We look around and we see ongoing natural disasters, we see wars, we see social inequality, we see injustice. The list goes on and on. Perhaps you wonder, where is Jesus the King? What is he doing? I struggle with uncertainty when there are transition times in my life when there are loose ends. I sometimes wonder, what is Jesus doing? What is King Jesus doing? 
I struggle when those I love aren't thriving. I worry. I wonder where is King Jesus for them? Perhaps you have your own struggles in following Jesus as your king. Most of us believe in the end time reign of Jesus when he will return and every knee will bow before him. But do we believe that Jesus reigns in the meantime? Friends, when you're struggling to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus, remember that he literally took up his cross for us. Because the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people eventually did find a way to kill Jesus. They hung him on a cross with a criminal on either side. Luke writes in verse, uh, chapter 23, the soldiers mocked him. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. The passage drips with irony. They mocked him as the king, but it was true. He was the king of the Jews and his kingdom didn't end there on the cross. On the day of Pentecost, Peter addressed a great crowd and declared, God raised him from the dead. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is alive. He is the Messiah. He is the king. He is the king the Jews had long been waiting for. But he's not just the king of the Jews. As the story arc of the Bible widens out in Revelation, we read in chapter 11, we hear in chapter 11, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. You might recognize in those words, words that Handel used in the Hallelujah Chorus from his Messiah, I'll resist the urge to break out into song. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Jesus took up his cross so he could offer us peace with God, so that he could be our king, so that he could invite us to join him in his reign over our world. Jesus will reign in the end time, but he also reigns here and now. He calls us to come to him, to follow him, to follow him no matter what it costs. Friends, it's an amazing challenge, it's a glorious challenge, it's a difficult challenge. So why don't I pray for us as we finish up. Lord God, we thank you so much for Jesus, our King. We thank you that you sent Jesus to live on this earth and to die on a cross. We thank you for that sign above his head, this is the King of the Jews, and we thank you that it is true, that he is not just the King of the Jews, but the King of all. God, we thank you that even now, as we look around our world and struggle to make sense of some of the things that are happening, we thank you that even now we know that Jesus is the King. God, please help us to allow Jesus to be King in our lives, to let him reign, to let him shape who we are 
the decisions we make, how we live. Help us when we struggle. And God, help us as we wait for Jesus to return to live faithfully to our King and help us to look forward to that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when he returns. We pray in his mighty name. Amen.